Matthew chapter 11, we're going to be looking at the rest of the chapter. We've been going pretty slowly through this and uh, should be able to finish the chapter today. Let's read what it says here in the last 10 verses of the chapter. Uh, Jesus, remember, had just been talking about uh, John the Baptist and his ministry and John having uh, now been, found himself in prison after Herod Antipas put him in prison at the Mercurius Fortress, which, remember, is on the east side of the uh, Jordan River. And uh, so he was uh, in prison at that time. And John began to wonder, uh, because his ministry seemed so short, and so he spoke to Jesus, or he had messengers uh, to send uh, to Jesus and say, Jesus, are, are you the one? Are you the coming one? Or should we be looking for another? Because everybody had these ideas about what, what Jesus should do. And most of them were, get us away from Rome. <laughs> Secure us and get us out of their bondage and, 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 and bring in the kingdom. You know, like the scriptures have said, bring in the kingdom. And, and so their motivations were good, but they didn't understand the real reason, uh, the initial reason, the most important reason that Jesus came into the world, and that is to save man from his sin. Certainly, he's going to deliver Israel in due time. And we know that at the end, he's going to do that. And the Bible says that at that time, all Israel will be saved. They will look upon the one whom they've pierced, and they'll see him. And he'll come back physically to this earth in his second coming. Not to be confused with the rapture, which is uh, time prior to that. So John is in prison, and he's, he's, he's struggling. And have you ever struggled? <laughs> I think if we all raised, uh, we could all raise our hand, actually, and say, yes, I, I've struggled. And uh, you may, it may not be a, really a lack of faith. It's just you're struggling. And, you know, the, the thing that stinks about human nature is that we're human, <laughs> I don't like being human. When I was younger, I liked being human. But now that I realize the perfection in Christ, now I no longer really want to be human anymore. I just want to be a robot. I want him to just push the button and transform me completely in an instant. And I would just be instantly obedient, doing what he wants me to do. I would kind of like that. And of course, I say that and my flesh would go be screaming and kicking, right? No, I don't want that. But we, we do, we want that. We desire to be like him. And it's going to take time. He's conforming us, right? He's transforming us into his image. Consecration and, um, is something that takes time. We've been saved. We've got the spirit of God in us, but it takes time for God to work those things out. And it's not his fault. I am the liability here. I'm the one slowing up this process, not Jesus. But we can get down from time to time, and John was in that place. He was not feeling, uh, feeling like he probably was a failure, maybe. Uh, his ministry was short. Jesus, are you the coming one, or should we be looking for another? And remember, Jesus, always pointing to the Scripture, tells his, John's disciples to go back to him and say, John, tell John that the blind see and the lame walk and the deaf hear and the dead are raised to life and the gospel is preached. And certainly that would jog John's mind because he had read those passages in Isaiah and he knew exactly what Jesus was telling him. John, don't lose hope. Everything that I'm doing is right on schedule. I know it doesn't fit with what you're, what's going on in your life, but you've been faithful. And he even tells the, the people he was speaking to, Jesus, he says to them, there's no one greater than John the Baptist, but the least of the ones who are in the kingdom of God are even greater than he, meaning on this side of the cross. The church, the least in the church are greater, is even greater than John the Baptist because it's under a new covenant. One that doesn't need to be improved upon. One that doesn't need to... Uh, Jesus is the, the, the finisher of it. He, he fulfilled it. And so now we get into verse 20 and let's read this. So Jesus really begins to upbraid those cities where he had done mighty works. Notice in verse 20, it says, Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. 
<clears throat> woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So a very, we'll get to the, the final portion of this, but let's go back now to the, the beginning in verse 20. And, you know, this message today is not an easy one because you've probably read the title of it, of the message, you know, A Call to Repentance. And it is. Jesus is speaking to these cities that he had done many great things. The light had shone in these cities, these three specific cities. And, and, and Jesus says, I, I've shown you so much. I've given you so much light. But there's a responsibility now that you have with that light. And unfortunately, those three cities, including Capernaum, where he, what was, it was his headquarters for, for, uh, for some time. And he stayed with Peter in his house next to the synagogue there. Even in Capernaum, you've been exalted, but you will be brought down to Hades, brought down to hell. Because I was with you, and yet it didn't produce in you any, any fruit at all. No, no fruit of repentance. And yet Jesus holds these cities accountable for the light that he had shown to them. The things that he had done, the miracles that he had done in their midst. It should have provoked a response. It should have done something. It should have done exactly what he intended it to be. Because whenever Jesus did miracles, remember, it was to, more often than not, to validate the word that he had spoken. And so, notice, then verse 20, Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. And underline that word, mighty works, because this word is a Greek word, and it's dynamis. It's where we get our word dynamite from, except it's, it's, it's speaking specifically of miraculous power. Miraculous power. So these mighty works or miracles or signs that Jesus did, they, they validated the message of his claim of Messiahship. Because anybody can say anything, but when you can back it up and say, you know, remember when he spoke to the paralytic man, he says, that you may know that God has power not only to heal, but to raise you, know, but to raise you up. And then he, he forgave him his sins, but anybody could do that because you can't qualify that. But he says... So that everyone here knows that I am who I am. Rise, stand up, and walk. And he did. The miracle confirmed and established the authority of the Scripture, the Word of God. The Word of God that was spoken to him. Rise and walk. And the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. So miracles or mighty works authenticated the message, not the other way around. In other words, it's not the message authenticating the miracles. It's the other way around. Miracles authenticate the message. So when you go to these miracle workers and they're just doing miracles, be very careful because if it's some, oftentimes it's just a sideshow. It's one thing if it's spontaneous and the word of God is spoken and the Lord comes upon somebody and they say, you know, I mean, those things can happen and they do. But the word is the most important thing, and for good reason, because what does the Bible tell us in Romans 10, verse 17? We know this verse. Commit this one to memory. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It's the word of God, not the miracles. It's always the word of God. Repeat that after me. It's always the word of God, nothing else. Those things just validate the message, and that's was the way that Jesus did things. So notice, he began to rebuke them, uh, the cities, because of the things that he had done. In Matthew uh, chapter uh, 13, you remember that Jesus was in Nazareth, and it says in verse 54 that when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, 
So uh, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Underline that word, mighty works, because it's the same word that's in our text this morning. Dynamis, it's the same exact word. Where did he get these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And by the way, here's Jesus' brothers and sisters and his brothers, James, Josie, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, plural, are they not all here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. And here's the indictment. Now, he did not do many mighty works, same word, dynamis. He did not do many mighty works there in his own hometown of Nazareth. Why? Because of their unbelief. They didn't believe who he was, and even the miracles that were done, they had been given great light and with great responsibility, or with, uh, with, with, um, with all of that, there was great responsibility for all those things that he did. So if those in Nazareth and other towns had believed in Jesus, it should have brought about repentance, but it didn't. And we know that unbelief is an awful thing, isn't it? It limits what God can do in and through our lives. When we are unbelieving, when we take God at his word, it's the best thing you can do. Take God at his word. There's nothing greater than to take God at his word. When you do that, even if you don't feel it, even if your emotions are lagging behind, follow through with what the word of God says, the feelings will catch up. It always works that way, believe it or not. And you know, can I tell you something, guys? In marriages, that's true in marriage too. You may not feel like getting your wife a, a bouquet of flowers before you come home from work, but try it sometime, even if you don't feel it in your heart. Even if there's not that warm fuzzy, right? You do that and you watch the expression on her face and all of a sudden the reciprocation happens. You see her face light up. She was totally by surprise and then you get kisses. It's wonderful, <laughs> right? So do that, do that. But it's a decision. Let the feelings and the thoughts catch up later, but do the right thing. So do the word of God. So unbelief limits what God can do in our life. And, and look what it did in the lives of the children of Israel when they were taken out of Egypt. If you remember, after the 12 spies returned from spying out the promised land, remember they, spent that sp- they sent that spy balloon into Canaan and, and it was floating over Israel for some days and then it was finally, no, I'm just kidding. Oh, look, classified documents. (laughs) Sorry. If I offended anybody, I didn't mean it. I shouldn't have done that. Sorry. But they went. They went into the promised land, and they had these spies, and then 10 of them came back and gave a bad report, remember? And so what did the people say? So all the congregation, this is Numbers chapter 14, all the congregation lifted up their voices, they cried, and the people wept that night, and all the children of Israel noticed God had given this great deliverance, but now they complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, if we had only died in the land of Egypt, or if we had only died in the wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to a land that, that we're going to fall by the sword, that our wives and the children should become victims? Would it not be better if we just returned to Egypt? <laughs> like this so much better back there. They had In N Out Burger and everything. <laughs> Unbelief. And this was only a sampling, we know, of the complaining, the murmuring that they did over the 40 years that they were there. But in Hebrews, it tells us something very interesting, and it's very applicable to what we're looking at this morning in our text, because Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 7, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. And, And obviously, the author of Hebrews is speaking about that journey and, uh, that 40-year journey of Israel in the desert. He goes, while your fathers tested me and they tried me in the wilderness and saw my works, my mighty works, you might even say that, for 40 years, therefore I was angry with that generation. And I said to them, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my way. So I swore in my wrath, God says, that they shall not enter my rest And so the author of Hebrews says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. That's a good word for us today. So many people are departing from the faith. They no longer go to church. 
And again, there's nothing wrong with having an online service. I'm really glad we have this technology, but we can't let that be our crutch, folks, because, and and there's some people who they have to because of their health and no issues there at all. But there's very healthy people in their slippers and their hot chocolate sitting in their beds watching. And they should be here. Why? Because fellowship the interface, the interaction. Jesus says, do not uh, forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as some do. And again, if you're sick and you're watching, praise the Lord. Or if you're you're, you're infirm and you can't, no issues at all. I'm talking about people who can be here that just have gotten lazy. You know, we we, got to break out of that. But beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, I'm not saying that those people have departed from the living God. I just want to make that very clear. I'm just saying that uh, we got to tighten up some things, don't we? And I know I I have to in my own heart. But exhort one another daily, and there it is, while it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And certainly the children of Israel were demonstrating this by their rebellion, for uh, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. And uh, for who, having heard rebelled. Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with them, now with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned because whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he, that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So Jesus is looking at these three cities Done a lot in you, Bethsaida. Done a lot in you, Chorazin. Done a lot, done a lot in you, Capernaum. And yet it didn't resolve. It didn't, re, it didn't provoke or produce any response. And he goes on in verse 21. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which are done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and in ashes. And this place where... Uh, uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida are located is on the Bethsaida is on the northern uh, northeast corner of, of the Sea of Galilee, and Chorazin is just a little bit north of Capernaum, which is right there on the north shore. And I've been to Capernaum and I've seen pictures of, of uh, Chorazin, um, and they're ruins. It, that's all it is. It's all ruins. It's a testimony of their unbelief. They were never resettled again. They're just ruins. Many other places in Israel, there were uh, ancient cities where, you know, modern cities were built over the top, but not these. The Lord's judgment upon them as a testimony to them of their unbelief. And Chorazin, this literally means a a furnace of smoke. It's located about, like I said, two miles north of uh, uh, Capernaum. But not much is known about what Jesus did in Chorazin, but he did do great things because he said he did. And we don't have a complete record of everything that Jesus did, but we have enough. We have enough. But what about Bethsaida? We know that near Bethsaida, near Bethsaida, was where Jesus fed the 5,000 with the fish and the loaves on the northeastern shore of the Galilee. Well, what else did he do in Bethsaida? Well, Mark chapter 8 records for us that he healed a blind man there at Bethsaida and many other things that he did. And so he holds them accountable for these things. So there is within this passage... Verses 20 through 24 specifically, a call to accountability and a call to repentance. And accountability to the things which we've heard and seen and how this ought to shape our own walk and the decisions that we make. It tells us in Luke chapter 12, it says, But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given... From him much will be required, and to him, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. And see, that's what he was saying to these cities. You've been given a lot of light. You have been, become very large sheep. I've given you so much, I've taught you, and now you're really large sheep, and you're even puffier because of your wool. 
very large sheep, and I've given you much, but I expect something in return on that investment. I expect your own heart to respond to me in in the positive, for it to produce faith in you. Because I not only spoke to you, but I verified it with mighty works. And why haven't you responded? There's something wrong when that happens. It's like a disease. And certainly sin is a disease. And I began to think about our own country in America. Now, I'm going to say some things that may sound political, and I don't mean them to be, because I'm going to be as generic as I can be, but I'm going to be truthful with you. You know, we've been very blessed in America. The Word of God has been given free reign in this country for quite a long time. And only a few hundred years ago, in the church in America, we used to send out missionaries all over the world to evangelize a pagan world. But now we need missionaries from other countries to come and evangelize us. We need people from Africa to come over and tell us and and to repent of our sin. And again, as I'm saying this, folks, I want you to understand I'm not saying this directly to you specifically. Now, if the shoe fits, then I need to wear it, right? But I know that this message is not just going to hit some of us today, including myself. I had to live with this for a few days, and it's not pleasant. But I know that this message gets beyond the four walls of this church. But the church in America is not in a good place. But like Bethsaida and Capernaum, we've been given much. But there's some in the American church that are more content at playing church than actually being the church. There's a difference. We can go through the motions or we can be the church. The church is a live organism. A church is one who gets its power from Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. A church is one that is active in the community. A church is one that is um, uh, helping to uh, propagate the gospel message. Because that's the most important thing. That's our main commission, right? That's our commission. But we have, like the Jews in Israel during Jesus' time, we've deceived ourselves in thinking that, well, if I just go to church, then I've done my responsibility. I've done my thing. I put my money in the agape box, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all set then. I don't need to do anything else. But it's been said that with great privilege comes responsibility. We are a very blessed country. Wouldn't you agree? We really ha- have been. And we have enjoyed and are enjoying what many Christians in other countries could only dream of. I'm going to share some things that are going to be a little pointed here this morning. And believe me, I was the first wounded in this. And I share these things not to make you feel guilty. I don't share these things to be critical. I share these things because I think it's necessary. I believe it's necessary. Not just for maybe some of us, maybe all of us, including myself, maybe none of us. I don't know. But many in the American church, we've we've become comfortable. We've become complacent. We no longer think it's necessary to read our Bibles every day. We pick it up once before, you know, while we're in church and... You know, but there's, there, there's, we no longer think it's necessary to read our Bibles and even to have a Bible study time uh, several times during the week. However much time, a half hour, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour, whatever it is, but we no longer think it's necessary that we pray every day and take part in even in compute, uh, community prayer meetings. Our prayer meetings on Tuesday night, you're all invited. Please Come. There's no success without prayer. Everything falls apart if it's not bathed in prayer. The church itself will be unhealthy without prayer. The school that we're beginning, if that thing's not bathed in prayer, it's going to be a dismal failure. We must pray. But many in the church, and I'm not saying you specifically, But many, I'm thinking of America as well, okay? Many don't think it's even necessary to tithe or give our time serving in the church. We no longer give to the, we no longer tithe. We no longer give of our time, whether it's for people and uh, families within the church serving one another or even outside of the church. You know, many people don't think it's even necessary. And certainly, many don't think it's necessary to really talk about Jesus. And especially not in public. You don't want to offend anybody. One English pastor said this. He says, there are countries in which people walk many miles to hear the gospel. And there are others in which even the church members are too busy to attend a service. 
When professing Christians value material things more than eternal verities, their faith becomes suspect. They are automobiles without an engine, boats without oars, bodies without life. And so I ask, where is the heart and soul of the American church in America in 2023? And again, not just us. Where is it? Where, where is our heart? Where, where do we go? What have we replaced Jesus Christ with? Have we replaced Jesus Christ, Christ with something else? Something more important. Maybe it's even family, and family is good. You, you, family is wonderful, but your family can take away all of your time. Even good things, but there are better things. The better things. So the church, we need to turn from these things and repent and remember our first love. Just as these three cities had been given much and they had totally lost it, they missed it. And Jesus upbraided them for that because of their unbelief. There's a, a verse in a hymn that we do called Come Thou Fount, and it's, the verse goes like this, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. O oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. And see, that's what I need, and I know that's what you need as well. Will you return to Christ today if you've strayed from him in any way? And for those of you who have not received Christ, will today be the day that you receive him? Jesus goes on in verse 22 and he says, But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Yes, the day of judgment. And, and Jesus had done these in Jewish cities and he's saying these, these other you know, Gentile cities they responded, and they didn't even have half as much as you, or very little, and yet they did, and you didn't. This day of judgment, we know, is referring to the great, the great, I'm sounding like Elmer Fudd here, the great, I've got to be careful with the levity, I'm going to ruin this whole thing, the great white throne judgment. We read, we've been reading about it in, in Revelation 20, where the wicked dead will stand, that's what he's referring to here. And he says, And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, yes, Sodom and Gomorrah, that horrible place back in Genesis 19. The mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom. It would have remained until this day. So it seems, you know, and that was a pretty wicked place, wasn't it? But God knows the hearts of all of us. He knows the hearts of America. He knows the hearts of the American church. He's the father of spirits. He knows us. What does it say in Jeremiah 17, verse 9? The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's the question, and the answer comes right on it in, on verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. Who can know it? Well, the Lord does. He knows our heart. He says he searches the heart to test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. In verse 24, back in our text, what does it say? But I say unto you that it should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And today, again, Capernaum is nothing but rubble along with Chorazin and Bethsaida. Rock heaps is a testimony. And no city or country or people can ignore and rebel against God and not expect a recompense or not to expect consequences. Because just as God has judged Capernaum and Chorazin, I believe that God is also judging our country. And you may not agree with me, and that's okay. Billy Graham, back in uh, July of 19th of 2012, he wrote this article on his website, and it's called My Heart Aches for America. And in it, he says, some years ago, my wife Ruth was reading the draft of a book I was writing, and when she finished a section, a section describing the terrible downward spiral of our nation's moral standards and the idolatry of worshiping false gods, such as technology and sex, she, started, she startled me by exclaiming, if God doesn't punish America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not a popular thing to say. A lot of people think, well, God's going to judge America because of all these things that he's doing. No, I think the evidence of the things that are happening are his judgment. And what are some of those? 
You know, America, the abortion, untold millions of babies. Thank God that God threw us a bone and overturned Roe v. Wade on a federal level. Now the states are all battling, but at least on a federal level, we got that out of the way. But millions and millions and millions of babies have died. And do you think that we're under the judgment of God? I believe we are. And why? Because look, look, look at the signs all around us. Look at the things, the signposts all around us. Marijuana being legalized in many states. The LGBTQ movement infiltrating all of our schools, high schools, universities. Children are experimented on as they are given puberty blockers to change their genders. Parents are supporting the stuff. Some are even undergoing altering, uh, gender-altering operations. Men, I don't know if you knew this, but you can be pregnant. Men can be pregnant, women can become men, men can even now have menstrual cycles, and there's even feminine products in some of the bathrooms for you men who have those issues. Drag queens reading to our kids in the public libraries. Family-friendly drag shows are being hosted before children. The satanic church is hosting at after-school Satan clubs. Critical theory has infected our preschools, middle schools, high schools, universities. Enemies of America are buying, extorting, blackmailing members of Congress and local and federal agencies all over the country. A cabal of foreign and domestic players are destabilizing our families, our economy, our military, our energy independence, our national sovereignty, nearly every aspect of our culture. These same players are putting with large sums of money, putting people in positions of power. Our voting systems have become completely compromised. Our elected officials are no longer upholding the Constitution of the United States, but rather fighting against it. Many government law enforcement agencies are now aloof doing their own things. There's no longer impartial justice. Many, many other things. We are truly living in a time that God had prophesied through the prophet Isaiah. And what did he say? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And then down in verse 23, he says, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. See, this is where we are at. We are living in Isaiah 5. This is the time. The things that are supposed to be good, they're calling bad. The things that are bad, they're calling good. And they're promoting. Have you noticed that recently? Everything just seems to be upside down. It it defies common sense. And there's a reason for all of that. And we better keep our eyes on the word of God because the deception is incredible. And folks, that is a judgment, I believe. God removing his hand from us. God removed his hand from Israel. Do you remember that before Jerusalem's destruction by the Babylonians in 586, God gave Ezekiel a vision uh, of, of his presence departing from the Holy of Holies, which was in the temple, uh, because of the continued rebellion and idolatry of those in Jerusalem. So the presence or the Shekinah glory of God, what did it do? It rested over the mercy seat, over the Ark of the Covenant. But what does it tell us? It tells us in this vision where God is giving it to Ezekiel, it says, Then the glory of God went up from the cherub. It went up from the cherub. It was over the Holy of Holies. So think of, uh, from your perspective, here's the Temple Mount. In the Holy of Holies, the, the presence of God departed. From, the, from over the top of that box and went to the threshold of the temple. That was phase one. Ezekiel 10, verse 18 says, Then the glory of the, and there's a lot of stuff in between here, we don't have time to go through, but the glory of the Lord then departed from the threshold of the temple, and then it stood over the east gate of the, of the, Lord, of the uh, house of the Lord. So it went from up from there to the threshold, now from the threshold all the way over to the east gate. And then in Ezekiel 11, it tells us that finally it just went over to the Mount of Olives, which Mount Mount of Olives is over here and the Temple Mount's here. It went from above the mercy seat to the threshold, the threshold to the eastern gate. And then from the eastern gate, it goes to the Mount of Olives and then gone forever. The presence of God. God says, you know what? If this is what you want... If this is what you want, Israel, if this is what you want, America, then you're on your own. 
Let's see what you got. But whenever God leaves, and, and this is not a popular message, we're not in a good place in our country. That's why we need to pray. That's why we need to get really focused. We need to do that. And why did God do that? Because of sin and rebellion. And all that was left for Judah and Jerusalem was just judgment from the Babylonians that would follow. But during this vision, God also told them that there would be, he would be like a little sanctuary for them during their captivity in Babylon. He would restore them to their land. And he does tell them that. He tells them the bad news, right? We, with the bad news, and then there's some good news. This is what I'm doing, but by the way, I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to cast you off forever. You're being chastened, but I'm going to be with you when you're in Babylon. I'm going to be like a little sanctuary to you. Don't worry. I'm going to take care of you. But you've got to go through this because you have rebelled against me. And the church also has, uh, you know, we've got a lot to look forward to. You know, God made promises to Israel. He's made promises to us. Things are grim right now, but we're going to see the glory of the Lord. We're going to see the glory of the Lord at the rapture of the church. That's the first time. And then when we come back with him in the, in the thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth, in the, in the millennium, we call it, we're going to see a glorified Christ sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. And it gets even better than that, because what does it tell us in Revelation? Even after this current heavens and earth are passed away, what does it tell us? When the new heavens and the new, new earth and the new Jerusalem come down from earth, from heaven onto earth, it says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came, and, uh, came to me and talked with me saying, come and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Remember Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you i think that's the place <laughs> and he's going to bring it down with us and we'll be there um uh, with him during that time and it says that her um and he showed me on the high mountain and showed me the great city the holy jerusalem descending out of heaven from god having the glory of god there it is her light was like a most precious stone and it tells us in revelation 22 and john says but i saw no temple in the midst of it in this new Jerusalem, there was no temple. For the Lord God Almighty and, and the Lamb are its temple. Because wherever there's a temple, there must needs be a sacrifice, right? That's what you do in a temple, you sacrifice. But guess what? The Lamb has already been sacrificed. There's no need for the temple any longer because he was sacrificed once and for all. So no temple needed. But notice, the city has no need of the sun of the moon, or the moon to shine for the glory of God illuminated. The Shekinah glory just filling and think about that for your light. Our genie can't tap into that. So there is hope. What I've shared with you is pretty dismal. It's a reminder, it's true. But there is hope. And we have to be careful that we don't wallow in our self pity and our defeatism, throw in the towel. You know, what can we do when everything seems to be falling apart all around us? What can we do? When there is no justice, what can we do when we see the things foretold in Scripture coming into focus? Well, we do what Daniel did. Because remember, Daniel was also one of those who was taken captive into Babylon. And what did Daniel do? Did he sit outside the gates of Babylon and throw a tantrum and a pity party? No, he, he continued doing what he has always done. In fact, that's how his enemies ensnared him. He continued to pray. He continued to keep the main thing, the main thing, and he continued doing it regardless of everything around him. He was like this sanctuary in the midst of hell. <laughs> That's what it was. One man, and that could be one woman as well. It could be us in the midst of our hurricane, in the midst of troubles. Do we throw in the towel? Or do we continue to worship him and serve him regardless? See, this is what I believe we need to do as well. And be careful that you don't allow your hearts to be overcome with sorrow. Because I have at times. Sorrow and despondency, but rather press in now and continue. Press into Christ and continue what he has called us to do. And what has he called us to do? 
In Matthew, he gave us the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then Paul would tell us in Philippians, but one thing I do, this one thing I do in the midst of all this stuff, and believe me, he was going through persecution because he was in the first century where persecution was really hot. And what did he say in the midst of his crazy hurricane that was all around him? He says, one thing I do, I'm forgetting those things which are past. Are you still clinging to things from the past? Forget about those things. Cover it in the blood of Christ and move on. You're a new creature in Christ. Even as a Christian, have you made mistakes? Confess it and let it be done with. And don't look back there ever again. God's not going to. Why are you doing it? And you continue moving forward. You forget about those things. Do like what Paul says, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. It's not a downward call. It's an upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Isn't that awesome? See, to me, there's bad news, but then there's good news. But we have to talk about the bad news. But there's good news for us. There's good news for us. And we need to turn, folks. We need to turn from any and all things that are keeping us from doing that one thing, that central thing, that great commission. Read that again. Read Matthew 28. Verses, you know, the last couple of verses there in the chapter. Read that and say, Lord, how practically can I do this this week? And it's much easier than you might think. God's not going to call you to the, you know, to the aboriginals in South America. He may, but, you know, he just wants you to be faithful where you're at. And you know what? Don't worry about anything else because just be faithful where you're at. Be faithful to open your mouth to the truth of the gospel. Let people know. And live a life that, that is attractive to them, that they're going to say, there's something about you that I don't understand. Have you had anybody tell you that? When you're really walking in the Spirit, people say, you know what, how, how is it that you can act like that? How can you have a smile on your face when you're going through such turmoil? You know, somebody ran over your dog, your furnace blew up, your water heater exploded, and your, 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 your basement's filled with two feet of water, your credit card got hacked, and the doctor just told you you got incurable cancer. Go home and die. How can you still have a smile? Well, these things are temporal. Yeah, they're setbacks, but guess what? I know where I'm going. Do you know where you're going? We know where we're going. And nothing should trump that. Nothing should ruin that. Nothing should stain that hope. And yet it does because everything is relative, and I get it, you know. But even when the worst things happen, think to yourself, I'm going to heaven. <laughs> and I'll never remember this ever again. This little blip on the radar screen, yes, the, the water, and I got to get you know, remediation, and I got to get all these you know, fans and mold people and specialists, and they got to sign off a waiver so the insurance company can pay me, and I got to go through all this rigmarole, and uh, just a blip. And then for eternity, we'll never look upon that. It'll be like, do you remember that? No, I, I really... I really don't. I don't remember anything. I don't remember any of the sorrow of my past. I don't even remember when I was languishing for three months in my bed dying of cancer. I, I don't even remember that because the glory is so wonderful now. <laughs> See, to me, that is cool. That is what we need to hold on to. Amen? So let me finish this quickly. So after that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. And this always seems to be the Lord's way. When he came into the world, he didn't announce it to those in Jerusalem. He didn't call the president on, in, in Washington, D.C. Hey, I'm coming. Is it okay? No, he showed up. And he revealed himself to a bunch of lowly shepherds in the field. The off-scouring of society, those people. That's who he revealed himself to. Not the high and mighty, not the rich and wealthy. No, it was, it was the, the, the people that nobody really cared about. 
Jesus said in Matthew 18, he says, unless you are converted and become as little children, you shall by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The Lord loved children, and we need to come to him with childlike faith. And uh, there was a 20th century pastor, his name is Ivor uh, Ivor Powell, he's one of my favorites, He said this about this verse. He says, There was and still is a great difference between childishness and childlikeness. One indicates a grown adult who remains a child. Sometimes that's me. Childlikeness reveals a man or woman, great as he might be, remembers he came from nothing. A child's mind is open. Preconceived ideas have not yet closed the door of understanding, and a small child will never try to persuade anyone he knows anything. He's revealed these things to babes. The least, the things that the world doesn't care about. Aren't you glad that Jesus did that for you and me? The greatest thing that could ever happen to a human being is to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And yet he did it in such a humble way. He didn't do it in the way that the world does. The world would have to have a marketing team. It would have to be on all the social media platforms. They'd have to have a media blitz right there on the, in the Super Bowl halftime. You know, they, they swing out Jesus on a, you know, or whatever. They, you know, they, they would have to do something like that to get everybody's attention. But Jesus says, I don't need to do that. I'm just going to come to you, and you, and you, and you. And I'm just going to speak gently and softly to you. I don't need a megaphone. I don't need the internet. I don't need anything. I don't need a cell phone. I don't need a Twitter account. All these things, Jesus said, uh, Uh, have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal to him. It it says in the Scripture that no one has seen God any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Jesus is the one who declares to us the Father. And it's through him, right? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. That means he is the conduit. He is the thing in the center that is, it's essential. Everything is through him, through him. He is the one who reveals to us the Father. And thank God that he has. Remember when he spoke, in fact, it was in the same passage. Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father, and it suffices us. And what was Jesus' response? Philip, have I been so long with you? Don't you know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? I am, the great I am, Jesus would say. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. My characteristics, the way I hold my... And think about the responsibility of that. The disciples never saw Jesus throwing a tantrum. You know, picking up a sandal and smacking it against a tree and throwing it into the Galilee. Those people had enough of them. Never saw it. They never saw it. Perfectly under control. Even when he went in and cleansed the temple, perfect control. Perfect control, even in his righteous anger. Perfect control. Anybody have perfect, righteous anger? I think a lot of times we do have righteous anger, and then our flesh gets involved, and then it becomes a mess. Then we're in jail. There's nothing wrong with righteous anger. You just got to be careful. You got to be the, who's governing your heart? Is it going to be your flesh or is it going to be the spirit of God? If it's your flesh, you're going to jail. If it's the spirit, you're going to be just fine. So he says, come to me all who are weary and all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And aren't you glad that you can come to one who understands it all, who, who can see right through you? He knows exactly why you do the things you do. He knows exactly why you do and and the motivations of your heart. And he knows the struggles, the deep things. And serving a man can be difficult, but serving Christ is so much better because he is such a perfect, uh, uh, he's such a perfect master. He knows when it's time. 
Because unlike man, the Lord knows when you need a break and when you need time off. He knows when you need to just hop in an inner tube and float in a lazy river for a few hours. <laughs> he knows. Do you need rest from your labor in your Christian walk? Do you need to have rest from the expectations that you place upon yourself and expectations of others upon you? Jesus' expectations are much easier. People are a load. But his expectations, because of his grace, are so much more gentle and kind. People aren't kind. But God is kind. They don't know that you need a break. They'll keep whipping you. More bricks, less straw. More bricks, less straw. Remember when he told that, Pharaoh did that to the, uh, to the Hebrews while they were in, 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 in Egypt? More bricks, less straw. You don't need a break, you need a whipping. And God's going, your day's coming, buddy. <laughs> you know, so you don't mess with the apple of God's eye because your lights are going out if you don't repent, Right? He says, take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And, and, and there is more than just a, a physical rest. There's a spiritual rest, an emotional rest, and all of that Christ gives us. But I think the most important rest is the rest of knowing that your search is over. When you've come to Christ, your search is over. You don't need to go anywhere else. You don't need to go to Buddha. You don't need to go to Allah. You don't need to go to the Mormon tabernacle. You don't need to go to the kingdom hall. You come to Christ and your search is over. Now there's a rest. You no longer have to find yourself somewhere out in California or in Manhattan, New York City. You can find yourself in Christ. He is the one. You come to him, the search is over. It's over. It's done. You don't need anywhere else. You don't need anyone else. You don't need anything else. You need Christ, and I need Christ. And he says, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And, you know, Jesus took more on his shoulders than we could ever imagine. He bore the sins. And in in, uh, Isaiah 53, it says that he was a despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs. There it is. He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Talk about a burden. He's, uh, and, and, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. And then Jesus, using their own livelihood, <coughs> this air is really dry, excuse me. Their own livelihood as an example. <clears throat> Excuse me. Wow. He talks about yoking. Two animals yoked together, an experienced ox and a not so experienced ox. <clears throat> the younger one can learn a lot if he is willing to submit himself and he puts himself in the yoke. And Jesus is saying, my yoke is easy, so be yoked with me. Because if you're yoked with Christ, much better. He's got all the experience. He's got all the knowledge. He's got more experience. And, and, and because he does, he knows the path very well. An experienced ox that is yoked knows the master who's got the reins behind him. And if he has experience at all, he knows exactly the noises that the master makes. He knows to start walking and he, he knows the right pace because the master has taught him the pace and the ox is happy as can be because it's either that or the slaughterhouse. Very happy to obey the master. It's a great job. I'm out here, I'm hearing him sing behind me, he's singing old, you know, old, old rugged cross, and here I am, you know, just a, uh, just a cow, you know, and I'm having a good, beautiful day, the soil's nice and dry, the air is nice and crisp, I'm, I'm just doing my thing, I'm staying in my lane, and I'm happy to do it, 
happy to do it. Jesus says, stay in, in my lane. Get in the lane with me. And what does he say to us in Jeremiah uh, chapter 6? And I love this. Stand in the ways and see, God would say to Jeremiah, and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it, just as that ox is going forward and it knows the path. It's done it so many times with its master, so used to the path, just get on the path. Find your, the old paths are good. They're well-worn. They're well-traversed. They've been proven and they are good. The new paths, highly suspect. Oh, but you can get there a lot quicker. Oh, there's a better way to do it. No thanks, I'm going to stay on the old path. The old paths. The old paths are what is going to get you into a life of fruitfulness. The old paths are going to lead you right to glory. The old paths are going to lead you right into the, the pleasing desire of Christ. So are you stumbling in a new path? Have you tried a new path? And we're finished here. <laughs> are you on a new path and you're stumbling around and you feel like you're kind of in the dark, moping around, bumping into walls, frustrated, angry? Well, here's a solution. Get yoked with the Savior, the author and the finisher of your faith, Jesus Christ. Get yoked with him. Is there anyone that you really want to be yoked with? After all, doesn't he know the end from the beginning? So he knows exactly what's happening. He's got the strength and the power, even though I, I feel like, you know, if, I, if, 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 if Jesus is, is like this, and sorry, to, to, you know, he's got all the knowledge and all the strength, if my strength fails, then he's got it covered. If my knowledge fails, he's got it covered. All I got to do is follow with him. I got to be yoked with him. And continue on that path and furrowing those rows of those soil and dropping seeds into the soil, the word of God, hopefully that people will hear it and that it'll land on the good soil and it'll bear good fruit, right? See, I want to be yoked with him. I don't want to be yoked with anything else because everyone else is a slave driver, but Jesus is so kind to me. Isn't he kind to you? He's been so lovingly patient with us and he's so gracious and I'm so glad that he knows when it's time for Rob to take a break. Sometimes I won't give myself a break. And he, we went to Florida this last season for Christmas. And I had all these things planned. Things I wanted to do with my family. And the Lord goes, I'm going to give you COVID. <laughs> so guess what? You're going to be on your back for uh, those two weeks that you're there. You're going you're to be in a room but you know what? It was fruitful. He knocked me out and I slept more in those two weeks than I've ever slept in my entire life combined. And that's a hard feat. I did. I slept. I slept. And boy, did I feel so much better. Got, I was able to talk to my brother for five hours and one phone call, talking to him about Jesus for five hours in a room all by myself looking out at the palm trees in the sunshine, calling my brother, what a great privilege that was, and for us to talk about the Lord. But I got rest, and the Lord's like, Rob, I know you have your plans, but I got a different plan. Are you willing to submit to it? Nope. <laughs> I don't want your plan. I want my plan. My plan is, and then, and then I, oh, wait. I call you Lord, don't I? That means that you have control over me. Okay, okay. But you know what? You submit, and sometimes you have no choice but to submit. In this case, I had no choice but submit to the plan. And I'm really glad because it did give me the rest that I needed. It, it kind of confirms this. Didn't want it, didn't ask for it. Would have preferred not to have it because you travel all that way and all that money to get there and then you're, you're quarantined. And everybody else got sick, by the way, except for Kathy's father. Everybody else in the whole house got it, too. So it was just a wonderfully pleasant time. <laughs> There'll be, like in our, in our scrapbook, you know, maybe for that year, there will just be a, the Grinch, a picture of the Grinch for Christmas. Right there. 
But that's okay because God knows what he's doing, right? So be encouraged. I, I want to encourage you to read those, the passage over again and let God work those things in your heart and, and turn from the things and, 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 and remember that he loves you and, and to get into his yoke. And it's easy and it's sweet and it's good. Get in the lane with Christ and let him lead you. That's all you got to do. And that's what's called abiding, abiding in Christ, staying yoked to Jesus. Amen? Sorry I kept you so long, uh, sort of. Uh, let's stand and let's pray. <clears throat> I'm really not sorry, but I am sorry a little bit. Because I could go on for another hour and you people are like, I'm hungry, I got things to do. So Father, we just thank you so much for this day. Thank you for uh, your great love for us. And Lord, I, I'm so encouraged, Lord, with just the things that you remind us of, Lord. That even though the Christian life is not an easy one, we know that it's not easy in this world, Father, but we know that, Lord, you have a plan and that you want us to be yoked with you. And when we are yoked with you, there's blessedness, Lord, there's, there's freedom, there's, there's joy even, even in the midst of, of difficult times. And so, Lord, help us to do that. I pray that you would touch each of our hearts today, that you would break our hearts wherever it needs to be broken, that we would turn from those things that we need to turn from, and, God, that we would get in our lane with you, that we would find the old path and stay in it and be content in the old path. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.